This is kind of an introduction from 520. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he's going to run through six scenarios, and we're going to come down and end in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to know what kind of righteousness you need that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, there it is, perfect righteousness, perfect righteousness. And in those six areas, Jesus is going to show that none of us have that perfect righteousness. Um, when we think, and so, uh, Lord willing, we'll get as far as I can this morning in terms of the first of those areas, and that is unjust anger, sinful anger. It's not, it's, it's not sinful necessarily to be angry. As a matter of fact, we are probably sinning at times when we are not angry. Um, Psalm 4.4 is repeated in Ephesians. Paul says, be angry. That's a present imperative. That's a command. And don't sin. Ah, there it is. I'm often angry over the wrong kind of things. I'm not angry when God is dishonored and... Um, I'm angry when I don't get my way. But when you're angry, do not, do not, do not sin. Um, so I call, I call this section, Jesus is going to clarify um, what real murder is. It goes beyond the external act, and it goes to heart issues, to heart issues. So I begin reminding you, as I remind myself many times, that when one of the Pharisees, they, they came to Jesus, he had already quieted the Sadducees, and they go, okay, now we're going to get them. We're going to get them. <laughs> oh, the darkness of the human mind. Um, so he came back. What's the, what's the greatest commandment? He's, he basically summarizes Deuteronomy 6.4. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He's not separating those things out as necessarily as different. He's piling on terms to say basically this, with the intensity of your entire being, with all that you have and all the strength, physically, mentally, spiritually, God is to be number one. <laughs> do we do that? Um, and there's a second commandment like that that's similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. If you can fulfill those, you're basically fulfilling the whole law of God. Um so I want to. I just want to go back again and remind ourselves and had an extra hour of sleep. Got up early. 
this morning anyway, and I'm trying to look at, did, do I have this out of order? Um, <laughs> I, I told, I'm supposed to email the PowerPoint to the tech people, and I said, Dylan, did you get it? I, I uh, emailed it to you about 10 minutes before I came over here. That's how I, I just finished it uh, this morning, but we'll, I'll go with what's on there. Um, loving the Lord our God with all our soul, heart, mind, and will, and motives, and emotions. And so I want to stress that loving God with all of your heart involves your mind. I mean, we, we have gone over that numerous times. What is your heart? It is your mind, will, and emotions, and, and your motives that are thrown in there as well. So it's so easy, even as a believer, but particularly for unbelievers, if I, if I got the right kind of actions, then I'm pleasing to God. No. I not only have to have the right kind of actions, but they have to be matched by the interior. They have to be matched by what I'm thinking, the, my motives, the reasons why I am doing things. And that's not just a problem in the first century. That's a problem that stems from the fall, what happened at uh, the fall. One of the recurrent themes throughout Scripture, particularly in the Psalms that we worked our way through, Psalm 94-7, um, here's what the wicked do. They say, the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't understand. Ezekiel, what a, what a, whoo. The Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, they say, The Lord doesn't see. The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord doesn't understand. Psalm 10, The wicked man in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts or as one Translation, the wicked man is so arrogant, he always thinks God won't hold me accountable because he doesn't care. And where did that come from? Well, it came from the first couple that were sinless, and they chose to follow the counsel of their own minds and investigate what Satan had to say. Is is would God really give you that prohibition? Would God really do that to you? He's not as good as you think he is. And so they evaluated God by their own minds. And boy, what a terrible result. And the immediate result was they, they had to hide from God, even thinking that they could hide from God, that God can't see them. I don't know what bush they were behind or, or what, what tree, but... What, what happened to enjoyment, walking with fellowship with God in the garden, and now you're going to go out and hide from God? And so what, is, what does the Lord do? He comes along and he asks them questions. Why? Because he's drawing out from them their wrong thinking. So I, I read liberal commentators on that, and the Lord says to Adam, where are you? And they're going, see, the Lord didn't know. And I go, 
<laughs> no, he's drawing out from them their wrong, the wrong thinking. We come down, um, and and what's Adam's re- response uh, to where are you? Well, uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord gives him more questions. Who told you you were naked? Have have you eaten? Of that tree that I told you not to. He's he's drawing out from Adam and Eve their sin. We come down to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 as uh, society goes downhill and then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Boy, if we think our nation has taken uh, a serious plummet that you can't even tell the difference between male and female, imago dei, all those types of things. Think of this. The Lord saw, he perceived that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, the Bible is going through here. It's not just your exterior. It's your thinking, your motives that produce that kind of exterior. Classic text on total depravity, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, says the heart, the heart, that's your control center, that's the way you think, the motives, and how you respond to that thinking. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. The most deceitful thing is my own heart. It's not other people. It's me. It's my heart. And it is desperately sick. I, I prefer that translation, incurably evil, because that word for sick is used also in Jeremiah for an, an, an incurable disease. So thank God when we become believers, he takes out of that incurably wicked heart and he puts in, instead of a heart of stone, he replaces it with a heart of flesh. But You just read through the New Testament, even believers can be deceived. But we have a different way of thinking. So in in question to that, um, who can understand that heart? Jeremiah 17, 10, I, Yahweh, the covenantal God, I search the heart. I test the mind. That's actually a word for the kidneys uh, that would be more in line with the emotions to give to each man according to his ways. We see it in Proverbs, in wisdom literature. All the ways, what do our deceitful hearts by nature tell us? They deceive us, and we say this, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives, the spirits. Proverbs 16, 2, often, you know, you're talking to somebody and... uh, um, you you start to go to the bad news and you go, have you, even if they'll recognize there is such a thing as sin in this postmodern uh, relativism that has encapsulated our culture in, in general, you say, uh, are, are you, uh, but, but I'm basically a good person, okay? How, how good are you? Well, I do, I do some bad stuff, but I'm basically... I'm basically good. Well, if you know that the Lord is evaluating every one of your thoughts, 
How, how would I like to have every thought I have had this week put up on the screen? You're, you're out the door. You're going, we're not listening to that guy anymore. I mean, our thoughts aren't, aren't always uh, dishonoring to God. And yet, I should be looking up to heaven and looking to Him. He, he evaluates my thoughts, your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking at this very present moment. Nothing is hidden from Him. Proverbs 21.2 emphasizes the same thing. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs, he evaluates the hearts. Often you'll have themes that are so important, they'll be stated repeatedly, woven into the fabric of Proverbs. Remember Daniel, God finally humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and after seven years out there um, eating grass with his hair growing long and he finally came back and the Lord restored his sanity to him and he says worship worship that God worship worship the true God of heaven he has humbled me I I really will not be surprised if we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven I think he he humbled himself and repented and along comes his son Belteshazzar about 20 years later and he's doing the same thing and and so he's in there has a great festival and, and partying and, and getting drunk and worshiping the gods of gold and silver. And all of a sudden, his hand appears <laughs> and writes on the plaster of the wall. And it says, he wasn't shaking in his boots. He, his knees were knocking together, though. I don't know he, what he was wearing, sandals or whatever. He was terrified. You remember what it said in Aramaic? Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin which basically the first one's repeated. You've been counted. You've been counted. You've been evaluated. You've been weighed, and you are lacking. Whew. God sees not only the exterior, but he sees the interior, the heart. Um, that, that theme is woven throughout Scripture, and yet... The deceptiveness of the human heart, we just kind of ignore that to some extent. In the churches to uh, the, the seven churches in Revelation, starting from Ephesus, you've lost your first love down to Laodicea, you're lukewarm, I'd like to spit you out of my, out, out of my mouth. You need to repent. You need to repent. And it always starts with thinking correctly about God and then by the strength and the grace and mercy that God supplies, we, we repent. We bring our actions. So from Genesis to Revelation, God sees. He knows not just the external actions, but the heart, the thoughts, the motives, the intents. Tom's going to wave at me here in about 10 minutes. I, gotta, I told you it was a long porch, but it does have, it does, I wanted to bring home the impact of this. Don't lose this in the first century what we're going to find in this text. i got to bring it to home on my own mind and seek to bring every thought captive to obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, I, want to, I want to remind us of the depth of our Lord's knowledge and our accountability uh, to him. I go back to... Uh, Sarah there in Genesis 
chapter 18. Remember the Lord showed up with two, two other visitors and one turns out, Abram didn't know it, but one turns out to be the Lord, the other one two angelic visitors. And, and there's Sarah, she's inside the tent listening to what's going on. And the Lord can't see her. And so the Lord says, um, um, Mom, I'm, you're, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's thinking, at my age? And Sarah is inside, and she laughed, not out loud. She laughed in her heart. And the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh, saying, surely I will bear a son since I'm old. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And what, and what, what happens? Sarah lied. She goes, she was afraid. She goes, I didn't laugh. Now, if you've never done that, then you need to repent of lying. Because growing up, well, I probably can't remember all the lies I told, but I'm sure I lied to my mother and others on various um, uh, occasions. Psalm 139, how striking is that with David writing there about both divine omniscience and divine omnipresence, and he starts out, Oh, Lord, you've searched me, you've known me, you know my sitting down, my rising up, my going out, my coming back in, and there is not a word upon my mouth, but you have known it all together. Even before there is a word that comes out of my mouth, you've known them before it came out. To be accountable to this God that knows everything about us, every thought of my heart, every intent of my heart. And, and then when, when do we sin the most? I think nobody's looking. So we come down to that section, right, where it talks about God creating in the womb. It says, even the darkness cannot hide me. The darkness and the noonday light are both alike to you, O Yahweh. I can't hide from him physically, and I certainly can't hide from him spiritually. I can't hide my thoughts. I can't hide my intents. And so the question is, do I try and align my thinking is what with what is in this book? Not subjectivism, not my own oppressions, but am I trying to align my thinking with what is in this book. And that's what we're going to look at in 521 through 28. David to Solomon. Now, son, David has all the officials of Israel, his commanders, his mighty men. They're all assembled. And he, he tells all of them, um, you know, you, you need to obey God. And then he turns to, to his son Solomon. And he says, Solomon. You, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. There it is. And the reason, David says to Solomon, for Yahweh, the covenantal God, searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Later on at the completion of the temple, 
Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his arms and hands to heaven and, and prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You alone know the hearts of all men. And yet even Solomon was deceived in his own thinking. And you come down to chapter 10, and I, that's a hard chapter to read that even Solomon went astray. No, one man, one woman, don't multiply wives. He did that. They're going to lead you astray, and there he is. Even a temple for Moloch. You know what Moloch was? Child sacrifice. See, just go on the Internet. You'll see pictures of what he probably looked like in a big, big idol with a, with a mouth, and you throw your children in there, and you go, the, the thoughts of the heart. We had supper with Mana's parents on Friday uh, evening. They were over here with appointment for doctor, with, with Dr. Benson, and I was stunned. So my, I, I came out of the other room, and they're sitting at the table, and June said to me, I want to show you something. I go, okay, no, no, stay right there. So I did. She got up on her own, and took 10 steps and walked to me and gave me a hug. I, I never thought she'd be able to do that again. You know how long they've been married? Not live, they have been married 72 years. Usually they know what each other is thinking by this time. But not perfectly. But not perfectly. God knows it all perfectly. Um. God knows each thought, motive of the heart, perfectly, makes no mistakes. Satan and his cohorts follow us around. They know our tendencies. I do not find in Scripture that Satan knows every thought that I have. He's not omniscient, but God is. Think of Acts chapter 5. Um, Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Hey, it was your own. And after it was sold, wasn't it in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And then we come down to 1 John 1, 7 through 9, such a great comforting text. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that has been helpful to me, what we just went through on, on Wednesday. And with Robert Murray McShane says, sometimes, you know, we sin. We don't, we don't is God really going to forgive me as a believer? I, I just, you know, I, I'm ashamed to go for him. He says, don't believe the lie. Believe what God has said there. Luther said it this way. Don't add the sin of despair to your previous sin. Go confess it to God and take whatever consequences God is willing to give you. But then the next verse, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul Mars Hill, God commands all men everywhere to repent because 
He will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof to all by raising him from the dead. This, this, this really, for an unbeliever, should strike terror into our hearts. This is the one true God. He knows everything about me. And really, it should be an encouragement as well. If he knows it already, I ought to ask him for forgiveness. I can't hide it from him. Um, so I'm off my porch into the text, and i got about five minutes to do the text. So this is kind of an introduction. But look again at verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So then we come down to verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. So there it is. What kind of righteousness do we need? We need a perfect righteousness. God doesn't lower the standard. We looked at verse 17. Right versus wrong thinking. We start with the mind. Don't think, Jesus said, that I've come to destroy or abolish or do away with the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And now when we come to, the, to, to these areas and what kind of righteousness is, is necessary, well, it has to be superior to the scribes and Pharisees. Theirs is an external righteousness. And so what is, what is Jesus doing here? Well, there have been different understandings when he says, um, you have heard that it was said, verse 21. You have heard that it was said, verse 27. It was also said, verse 31. You have heard that it was said, verse 33. You've heard that it was said in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, verse 43. What he is doing is not pitting himself against the Old Testament Scriptures. What he is doing is what you have said, and it was said to the Asians, this is a teaching at this time that is faulty. Now, I know... It may not seem like it in the first one, because it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And when it says, but, and it's very emphatic in each one of these, but I say to you, is Jesus doing something different or superseding the Old Testament Scriptures and saying, but I, I have something new, even more important for you to understand. I say, no, he's not. What he is doing, and this is what the reformers in general understood, what Jesus is doing here, he is pointing out the true intent of the law. In other words, when you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Okay. I didn't, I didn't, execute anybody, didn't stab anybody. I survived Chicago. Nobody shot me, or I didn't shoot anybody else. And so I'm not a murderer. Jesus is going to come back here and say, oh, you're working on a certain exterior level, just like the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's bring this home to the true intent of the law. So when you go through the Decalogue, and some say, well, I've, I've I've kept all those perfectly. They go, mm. but you come down to the last one. What is coveting? What is coveting? 
Where does it start at? In the heart, in the desire. And so that's what he's driving at. So you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So here it is. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, the, the anger here, was Jesus ever angry? Sure he was. He, if, if he turned over the money changers' tables and drove them out, he, he, was, he was furious with them. He was even angry with his disciples at times for their unbelief. The, the point is not anger. It is sinful anger. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That, that's in a, a smoothing out, calling them hraka. Now, we usually don't go around, you hraka. We go, you, you empty-headed, nitwit, dubby. You're just about as stupid as they come. And, uh, but sometimes it's true. You go, you just violated that. No, I'm just saying Jesus called his disciples. Oh, fools and slow to believe all that the Scriptures have spoken. I had a guy in counseling one time, and uh, you don't know him, so I'm not breaking counsel here, but he said, you know, he was committing adultery on his wife, and um, so I was rebuking him, and he said, but I love both women. I go, say that one more time. He says, I love my wife, and I love this other woman. And you know what I said to him? You're a fool. And I didn't violate this. He's a moral fool thinking that the statement he just made is true. And he's starting to get a little self-righteous anger. I go, hey, let's go to Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs, see what they have to say. So this is doing it in a sinful way manner to run somebody down, just tear up their character that, that isn't true. You have the third one there, you, you fool. So he's going to go here, murder, uh, sexual sin, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love. Um, the point here is Jesus getting to search the heart. Think about the way you think. So you can murder somebody with your thoughts. It's not the physical act alone. And true evaluation of murder, sinful anger, sinful insults, sinful, uh, calling them raka, fool. So what are you supposed to do? You respond to in pleasing to God. And it's 20 till, and I'm going to have to hold off to the way you, we respond here to uh, next week, but let me just end this way before we go to the Lord's table. We go to the Lord's table here shortly. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remember him, and that's evaluate ourselves correctly. And if we have sinful anger, if we're at odds with people, you know what you need to do? Then don't take of the Lord's table. Wait and go get right with that person. Um, and this whole 21 through all the way down through 
48, Jesus is graciously but firmly driving home the point. If you're going to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It has to be an interior righteousness. And how do we get that? We get that through simple faith. You go down to Romans 3, 21 through 26. It's the very righteousness of Christ. Perfect life, penalty for sin paid at the cross. And that righteousness from God is revealed through the gospel. I come to him, I say, I've, I've had more, for me, I've had more than sinful thoughts and motives. I've had sinful behavior, Lord. I acknowledge them. I think your thoughts after you, that I'm a sinner, what I deserve is hell and wrath. But you have also said, Come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Lord, I'm taking you at your word. I'm coming to you. I need that righteousness from heaven. And he never turns that kind of person away. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we want to think correctly. If you're a genuine believer, you are invited to partake with us. We ask parents to please determine you know your children the best. Um, and whether or not they ought to partake, they should have made a clear profession of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they should understand what we're about to do together. But to partake of the bread and the cup without thinking correctly is just mechanical. We want to think correctly about Christ and what he has done for guilty sinners. Jerry.